You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. Every time I turned to it, it worked. So I turned to it more and more. You know, I was told I was fat, ugly, stupid, lazy, worthless, never going to be anything. You know, you tell that to a kid, they believe it. My guest today goes by the name of Rex Shades Eagle, and he is the author of a new book called No Love, Life Lessons from a Recovered Junkie Ex-Con. Welcome to the show, Rex. Well, what's up, man? How you doing? I am doing great, man. I'm glad we finally got to uh, connect and and get to see each other face to face on the zoom call. And, uh, man, I'm excited about our conversation today. I know you're, uh, working on a book. You got a Kickstarter going, man. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. The book is, uh, I don't know, man, I'm 47 years old. <clears throat> I started reading when I was, uh, the family, the family legend <laughs> is that, uh, I started reading about two and a half, three years old because my favorite word was why. Why, why, why? I was one of those kids. And uh, I was the youngest of nine, I think. Nine. Two adopted. The rest were all my dads. Uh, my mom, who raised me at that time, was uh, all of our stepmom. Um, she, she, she married my dad. Uh, he, he showed up at her diner with like five kids. And uh, they ended up falling in love. And she ended up raising his five girls and they adopted two boys, my brother and me together, not together, but them as a couple adopted them. He was five when he was adopted. I was four months old, but I was one of those kids. Why, 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 why? So my sister, Tammy, who was my youngest of my sisters, she, uh, she got tired of it. So she was like, if you want to know why you got to start reading books. So the first book we ever read together was One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. I fell in love with reading. And um, I remember in third grade, I was reading at like a sixth grade reading level. And I remember in the fourth grade, I had to do a book report. I couldn't figure out what book I wanted to do it on. And the choices that they gave us were like way below my reading level. It was like Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing or like Super Fudge. You know what I mean? And uh, my brother hands me a copy of George Orwell's Animal Farm. I read it in the fourth grade and I did a book report on it. And my mom helped me. I had to look up a bunch of the words. I didn't know what they meant. She helped me. She didn't help me write it. She just helped me research it. That kind of changed my life. I got really into punk rock and never stopped reading. Got really political. Um, I was in a punk rock band-ish. We didn't really do much um, in high school. <laughs> uh, we were called SDI. Started off as severely deranged individuals. But then uh, when we got really into punk, like Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and like Minor Threat, we changed our name to, because uh, that's when Reagan introduced the Star Wars program, right? The Missile Defense Program, or it was actually called Strategic Defense Initiative. So that's what we changed our name to. And, uh, I just kept reading, you know, and I decided, I decided I wanted to be an author, you know what I mean? But I wanted to write like a fantasy, sci-fi. I was really into that. I never really followed through with it though. It was always something that I just talked about. 
It was always something when I got high. I was like, oh yeah, man, I'm gonna write a book someday. And I'm gonna be like, dude, basketball diaries. And I'm gonna write about getting high, make a bunch of money. And it's funny because you know, eight years after I stopped doing dope, stopped getting high, I uh, decided that I wanted to write a book. So the book is kind of pretty much just tells my story. I didn't find out I was adopted until I was six. So like from Christmas of 1979 to about Valentine's Day of 1980, it was probably the worst two and a half months of my life. When I was five years old. My, my first memory as a child was uh, my mom and dad getting in a fight really bad. Someone had called. My dad wasn't home. Somebody had called on the phone and uh, my mom was all pissed off and drunk. She didn't drink. She was the kind of woman who she would have a half a glass of wine and stop because she was getting tipsy. And like, that was like after drinking it for like four hours, like that's how, you know what I mean? That's how amazing her look, amazingly low her tolerance was. And I remember uh, her drinking brandy and like having way more than one glass events happened things went on and she ended up pulling a gun out on my dad and pulling the trigger firing off a few rounds well fortunately for everyone involved it was my dad my dad was the head groundskeeper for glassboro state college at the time i believe he was that he may not have been the head groundskeeper but he worked for the um for the college at the time i'm from glassboro new jersey it was the local state college in my hometown and uh it was his starter gun for the track and field events and it had blanks in it. So this is small town, New Jersey in the eighties. Nobody goes to jail, right? My dad used to do private detective work for the local police department. <laughs> so the cops come, Cass, are you going to kill him? No, I'm not going to kill him. Ed, are you going to kill her? Nah, it's all good. You know, okay. Everybody, it's Christmas Eve. You know what I mean? Like get your shit together. <laughs> and I'm sitting on the stairs leading up to the bedrooms. My dad comes around the corner. And I'm like, dad, I was like, is Santa Claus still coming? And he just looks at me like so serious. He's like, Santa Claus is dead. He's like, I shot his fat ass. He's bleeding out in the backyard. Five years old, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, what? Right. So, okay. So fast forward a couple of weeks. My birthday is on January 16th. My sixth birthday, we spend the entire day in a courtroom. I'm like, man, what are we doing in this courtroom? You know, but I don't know. I'm just with my dad, whatever. He's my hero, right? He's in the National Guard. So he's like G.I. Joe. He's uh, he's a multiple black belt in uh, multiple disciplines of martial arts. He used to take me, uh, he used to train in Kim's karate in Glassford, New Jersey. And he was a black belt in four other disciplines. And he was learning karate. And I asked him, I said, later on in life, I said, why did you study karate? He's like, because I could never beat Master Kim. He's like, he's like, everyone who ever trained these, I was always able to beat them. I was never able to beat Master Kim. That's off topic. So anyway, I'm sitting in this courtroom. And uh, as the day goes on, we leave, we go to lunch, go to the diner, come back, spend the rest of the day. All these families are doing all these things. And all these kids come and go. And so finally, at the end of the day, the judge, you know, and this isn't verbatim at all. Um, he's like, Mr. Walter, that was, my, that was my dad's last name, Ed Walter. He said, uh, he said, well, it looks like, looks like his real father is going to show up. He's like, so 
We remand custody to you. Adoption approved. He's yours until he's 18. Right? So I'm like standing here holding my dad's hand, you know, like what's going on here, you know? So on the way home, I'm like, dad, what, what is he talking about? His real father. You know, he's like, so basically he tells me, he's like, well, he's like, I'm not your real father. He's like, I'm your real mother's father. He's like, so I'm really your grandfather. He's like, and your parents didn't want you. He's like, they dumped you with the sheriff. He's like, and I went and got you. He's like, so now I'm stuck with you. So that became a running theme. And now I'm stuck with you, which eventually evolved into the wish I'd have never gone down there. It was the biggest mistake, which eventually around 11 or 12 turned into, because I, I grew up right across the bridge from Philly. Um, we used to drive across the bridge and, uh, a lot. You know, it's just kind of like going to Denver, you know, if you live in Boulder, Colorado, you know, it's, it's just a little drive. And, uh, I remember driving across the Ben Franklin bridge and my dad saying things like, you know, I should just do us a both favor and just drive off this bridge. Like, who the hell says that to a 12 year old, to an 11 year old, you know? But anyway, back to the story, a couple weeks after I find out I'm adopted, maybe like the end of January, my dad pulls me into his CB repair shop, which I thought was the greatest thing in the world. He, he had all these CB radios and ham radios and he repaired them and sold them. And uh, he said, if you had to choose who you were going to live with, your mom or me, who would you choose? And I'm like, why do I have to? He's like, ah, we're just playing a game. So I'm like, you, you know, I thought about it. You know, it wasn't like a quick response. But as a kid, you start going through a list of things, you know, like mom makes me eat Brussels sprouts. She makes me eat lima beans. She makes me make my bed take baths <laughs> you know dad takes me fishing he takes me on stakeouts when he's doing work for the police we play chinese checkers you know like he makes billy my older brother turn on gilligan's island when that's what i want to watch you know what i mean like so i'm like in my mind i'm like you know i want to go i would if i had to choose i would choose you that would turn out to be probably the biggest decision i unwittingly ever made in my entire life about a week later, we moved into another town, another house across town in with a woman and her one, two, three, four children, one boy younger than me, and the other three were teenagers, um, another girl who was the youngest of the three, and then two boys. And immediately within the first two weeks, started beating me. Bad. The second time she actually like really laid into me was with a soup ladle and she busted my head in three spots in the back of my head. I had to go to the hospital and get stitches. On the way to the hospital, she tells me, uh, she pulls over in a dirt lot and she looks me dead in the eye. She tells me, if you ever tell anybody about the things that go on in this house, she's like, I'll kill your dad. She's like, I won't do anything to you. She's like, and I might go to prison for the rest of my life. She's like, but you'll have to live the rest of your life knowing that because you couldn't keep your mouth shut, your dad's dead. So I kept my mouth shut. Went to the hospital. The doctor made her leave the room because she wasn't my immediate family. Her and my dad hadn't got married yet. He, his, his divorce wasn't even final yet. And uh, the doctor, he's like, son, he's like, you want to tell me what really happened? And the story was is that I, I, I was running through the kitchen and I slipped on the freshly waxed floor and then I hit my head on the dishwasher, which would have been a great 
story had I had one split in the back of my head. But like it was so jagged, apparently, and so busted up that it was obvious that it was multiple blows from a blunt object. And I just kind of sucked it up. And I was like, I told you, slipped in the kitchen, hit my head on the dishwasher. So this is the crazy part of the story, right? The doctor was like, okay, stitched me up, sent me on my way. That tells you how different the world then was from the world now. So I'm, I'm just going to say this real quick before I get sidetracked and don't forget to say it. The number one reason I wrote this book is because when all of the shit that happened to me was happening, nobody said a thing. Nobody was a voice for me because I had no voice. I had absolutely no voice at all. There are millions of children out there who are being molested like I was, who are being beaten like I was, who were kicked out of their house as children at 12 years old. I was kicked out of my house at 12 years old. Because after six years of abuse from this woman, and I'm not going to go into the abuse, probably the worst part of all the abuse, the six years that it went on from six to 12, because I was kicked out at 12 years old when I fought back. I'll tell you about that in a second, because that's a pivotal, that's when, that's when I took control of my life, I believe. That's when the choose your own adventure became the point in the story. It was like to do this, go this way, do this, turn to this page. But the worst part of the abuse was my hero didn't save me. My dad was this larger than life Godzilla of a man in my life who, as soon as he had a younger, fresher, cuter kid to play with, he neglected me and threw me to the side. And that's probably the biggest, the biggest thing in the society that we live in today is neglect. Time is the one commodity that we can never get more of. It's the most valuable thing that we can give to our children. Absolutely. It's the one thing, because there's a point in parents' lives. I've never, I, I had a kid. That's part of the story I'm not going to go into. I can't tell at all. Yeah, I'll leave something for the readers. But uh, I've had the privilege of being a stepfather once, in a bad marriage, and now in a beautiful family. There's a point when your kids will stop wanting to hang out with you. You know, so like, I feel like parents don't take advantage of the time when they do. Like I idolized my dad. And when she started doing this to me, I didn't understand like what I was doing wrong. I just wanted a family. You know, I was so happy. Like, I mean, it sucked leaving my mom, but then this new family moves in. Now I don't just have one older brother living at home. I have three. And now I got an older sister back at home because mine had moved out. And now I got a little brother, you know what I mean? Like, so like for me, it was like winning the lottery. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was like losing the state lottery and then like, oh, you're sad. And then winning the Powerball, you know, that's how I felt. And then for no reason at all that I could ever understand and still don't to this day, it got abusive. So at 12 years old, something happened, nothing really amazing, but my stepmom came at me with a two by two three feet long and she started to swing it and it was on target to hit me in the head. And uh, she's a pretty big woman, definitely overweight from German stock. You know what I mean? She's a large woman, large overweight woman. She could swing, <laughs> you know, I had been dealing with it for six years. I, I knew where, where, what she could do. And I don't know, man, there's a couple of events in my life that I can remember like 
movie scenes that I've seen a million times. Like I can tell you every detail of them, exactly how they happened. And time froze. Like time literally stopped for me. In my head, I had this conversation. And uh, I know with who now, that's part of the book too, is getting to understand my mental health. I had a conversation with myself. And I was like, man, this woman is trying to kill you. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But if you don't stop it, she's going to kill you. I made a decision. Time, boom. Click back on and put my arm up. And she hit my arm, broke my arm, broke the board. And I took off on her, man. I beat the shit out of her. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. I blacked out. I don't remember. Uh, I remember waking up in my dad's dining room, uh, our house. Uh, this is a few houses later. Um, <laughs> I talk about that in the book, too. They, they didn't do too well financially once they got together. I went from being a pretty decent working class family to a really poverty stricken, uh, poor, really, really poor. But I remember my next memory is uh, I had this army pee bag, one of those green duffel bags uh, packed with my clothes and a bunch of my cassette tapes and some comic books. My dad was like, get the fuck out of my house. I'll never come back. And, uh, we got in this argument. I'm like, man, are you sure? I'm like, is this the choice that you want to make? This is this is who you're choosing. Like when the, when the decision was mine, I chose you. You know. And now when the decision's yours, you choose them. And I mean, he would go to his deathbed swearing he knew nothing about it, which is probably the most horrible part of the whole story. Is that all of this took place under his house? Man, there was broken arms, broken bones, broken nose, multiple busted head wounds, stitches. So when I got kicked out at 12 years old, man, I turned to what what anybody was going to do back then. You know what I mean? I'm living on the streets pretty much in like South Jersey. I mean, literally in South Jersey, but I mean, me, Miles, my best friend growing up, uh, we were going to Camden to squat in buildings because we didn't know where else to go. I was literally the first homeless person in my hometown and nobody knew it. I hid it until high school. And I, I started doing dope, heroin, cocaine first, actually, was the first hard drug I did. But uh, first time I did heroin, man, it was like, where have you been all my life? You know, like seriously, like it's, it was like, my life sucked. I mean, you can understand why. I had no one, I had nothing. And then here's this little, five dollar bag of bliss that you know was just like holy shit and every time i turned to it it worked so i turned to it more and more you know i was told i was fat ugly stupid lazy worthless never going to be anything you know you tell that to a kid they believe it look at the look at the most Brilliant people in our society, the, those who do well, the wealthiest, the most successful, they're the ones who've been encouraged their entire life. Not all of them. Some of them are really, you know, like, look at Tony Robbins. Love that guy. He, he came from nothing. He is 100% self-made. He's my, he's my, like, uh, my hero. <laughs> I love that man. Uh, he does so much good for so many people. Sorry, not trying to plug him. You know, 18 years old, uh, I, I, I stuck with school, man. I stuck with learning. I didn't graduate. got my GED. That's a whole other story. At 18 years old, uh, I got it, came to a little cash because of a 
an accident that I was in a little settlement. And I ended up uh, taking off with the Grateful Dead. And for the next 21 years, man, it was a party. A party while Jerry was alive. And then when Jerry died, I kept on partying. Um, my party got harder. I got busted the first time in 1996. I had 22 federal indictments for the RICO Act. And I was facing 986 years in federal penitentiary. And I beat it on the technicality. Never even went to court. There was an issue with the warrant. Ended up going to prison for possession of three tenths of a gram of heroin, which they allegedly found in my little change pocket of my jeans, which is hilarious because I was doing so much stuff back then that like that was probably a dirty paper or something. And for the next 10 years, man, I think I was free a total of eight months, maybe, and I'm not not free. Free, like as I mean, like not incarcerated at all. I was in and out of prisons, county jails, halfway houses, detoxes, rehabs. Till 2005, I got out, and I that was the first time I, beginning of 2006, I got out of prison in November 1st of 2005. I was strung out by Thanksgiving, by my 32nd birthday on January 16th, 2006. I woke up in the house where I was renting a room. Where I was on an ankle monitor, um, wasn't allowed to travel more than a thousand feet from my front door. It was exactly 996 feet to the front door of the liquor store across the street. I knew that because I walked it off with a little one of those little walker things, that you, the wheels that you measure measure with. And at my curfew, I was allowed to leave at seven o'clock in the morning. I had to be back at seven o'clock at night. I had a job where I was so strung out that I had. And I, was, and I was using all kinds of stuff to mask my UAs. So I had my job and my parole officer convinced up to this point that I had a tumor on the diaphragm of my stomach. And that's why I couldn't hold anything down. Because when I do heroin, I'm like a drug-induced bulimic. I can't hold anything down. So I lose tons of weight. So my excuse to my parole officer was that I was doing all, that I had cancer. So I wake up on my 32nd birthday and I'm, in a room where there's a bunch of people that are all teenagers because the person that I'm running the room from is only 21 years old and her boyfriend is 19. So all of his teenage friends came to my 32nd birthday party. I live nine blocks away from the parole office on an ankle monitor. And it's like a Tuesday, right? So that was the first time I got clean. Uh, it didn't work. I ended up uh, on a bunch of psych meds, pain meds, because I broke my back two years into sobriety for all intents and purposes. I was strung out on pharmaceuticals, psych meds. Um, I ended up relapsing after a bad divorce and through a failed suicide attempt, I ended up turning myself in uh, as I was on the run from probation for pawning some stolen stuff. Some events happened while I was in County jail that, uh, led me to really take a really, really deep, hard look at my, my use. And one of the glorious things, the first time I got sober was through 12-step recovery, um, AA and HA. And uh, I was super big book thumper. Uh, it didn't work for me because I was pretending. I was pretending to be okay because when I worked, I did everything legitimately. I worked the steps to the best of my ability. I, I mean, my first, the first guy I sponsored, this is no, nothing on me, but he just celebrated 14 years. 
he's got more time than I do. He kept, he, he kept the, he stayed the course. Uh, but I gained all this self-knowledge working the steps over and over again for five years. Cause every time I dove, I dove deeper, which we're, we're supposed to do it says in the book that more will be revealed. That's why we continue to work the steps. But when I turn to people and I'm like, man, like, so it turns out I'm like an even bigger piece of shit than I thought I was. And I have all this stuff. Like, what do I do with it? And everybody's answer was pray about it. Give it to God, which don't get me wrong, man. I've had a dialogue with my higher power since I can remember thinking. So I believe in God. I believe in the power of the universe, what my higher power can do. But I also believe that faith without works is dead. And that I had all this self-insight that literally for myself was a big contributing factor into my relapse because I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know where to go with it. So when I was in county jail, I decided I was really going to dig deep. And I did, man. And I went and I found out that the reason that I got high was because of all this trauma. So for the past eight years, man, for that first year is when I really, 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 I was like, I'm going to be in here for at least a year. So I committed. I took a vow of celibacy. And there was, oh, you were in county. That means like not looking at things that objectify men or women, not masturbating, not doing anything because I was addicted to relationships. I used sex and relationships as a way to validate my self-worth. Found that out in sobriety. So that's something. All these things that I found out that like are my character defects or as I like to call them, my defense mechanisms, they're what kept me alive. They don't really jive with the man that I'm trying to be in this new life. You know what I mean? So I had to really dig deep and get past that. And I had to get to a point where I could sit and be cool with my demons. We could sit down and we could meditate and we could just be silent and I could be with myself. And I could quiet the voices in my head. And that's what the book talks about, man. You know, it goes way deeper into detail about that, you know, and I'm sorry if I ran over, <laughs> I, 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 I tend to, I'm, I'm a storyteller, man. So, you know, I knew the book would come eventually. It's here and the Kickstarter's there, man. You know, um, I think it's a project worth believing in. If others don't, that's fine. You know, um, the reason I did the Kickstarter is because the self-publishing deal that I have, the more that you invest initially up front, the bigger the promotion and stuff that they do. But um, if I have to go the low route, I'll go the low route. If I got to sell my car, I'll sell my car, man. Gas is expensive anyway, but uh, it's going to happen. You know, um, it's a story that needs to be told, like I said, because there's millions of kids who don't have a voice to be heard, you know? So I really appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, of course, man. I, I thank you for sharing your story and just kind of in closing, um, would you mind telling the, the listeners where they can find you? I know you have some different social media profiles. I'm not sure if you have a website or not, but if they're interested in finding out more about your book or finding your Kickstarter, um, what's the best place for them to find you at? Yeah, man. Um, on Twitter, I'm R shades Eagle on Instagram. I'm Rex underscore underscore shades Eagle. And on Facebook, I'm just Rex shades Eagle all very public. Um, I'm not one of those kind of people. If you follow me, I'll follow, or like, I'll follow you. And then as soon as you follow me, I'll stop following you. If I don't want to follow you, I won't, but uh, if you want to follow me, that's awesome. I appreciate any and all support. There's a video kind of, you know, supporting the Kickstarter. Um, if you want to find me on Kickstarter, it's the name of the book is 
no love life lessons from a recovered junkie ex-con so yeah man awesome this is uh this has been a great experience man it's awesome to meet you kind of face to face and get to talk with you yeah definitely man I'm, i'm glad that we were finally able to connect and you know we've been messaging each other back and forth for oh man i don't even know how long at least a couple weeks and yeah uh, yeah just glad to have this conversation man thank you for coming on and being so vulnerable man and sharing some of that some of that deep dark stuff that a lot of us probably don't want to talk about but you know kind of like you alluded to if if we don't address those things from our past man like they're going to creep up on us and uh you know that that's it's a relapse waiting to happen or something along those lines man and i know that uh it's uncomfortable and it's difficult to, to talk about and to, to work on those things. But man, we, we got to do it. One of the, one of the people that was really big in my recovery was Brene Brown and she's all about using vulnerability as strength. So if uh, the, the demons and darkness only had, or the demons and the monsters only have power in the dark, she shine the light on them and they lose their power. Change your story, take back the power. Rex, thank you again for coming on the show today, man. I really enjoyed our chat. Guys, be sure to check out the links in the show notes so you can stay up to date on his new book. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.